Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. Good morning, all. You know, when we read the scripture, as we do every Sunday morning, we read it, we should also not only hear it with our ears, but listen to it with our hearts. And we pray then that that is in preparation to receive, not only hear, but to receive the message that Mark's gonna deliver to us. The scripture this morning is 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer a grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thank you, Carrie. This morning, I am uh, beginning a new, a new series that I am calling uh, God's Rest for My Soul. Okay, I've got a little bit of juice now, good. Okay. Um, God's Rest for My Soul. Uh, the last time I had an opportunity to spend a few days uh, focusing on prayer and scripture, I ended up gravitating toward three psalms in particular, and uh, the first one I kind of stumbled upon, and I noticed as I was reading through it, there's a name mentioned at the beginning of the psalm, a guy named Jeduthun, and in fact, there are three different psalms that have this attribution. Two of them are written by David, one of them is written by Asaph, but all three of them say, for Jeduthun, or according to Jeduthun. So we don't know exactly what that means. Uh, Jeduthun is, is mentioned in Chronicles as one of David's chief uh, temple musicians. So clearly he's an important part of the musical worship history of Israel. But we don't know exactly what's meant when they say, for Jeduthun, or according to Jeduthun. It seems that there is maybe some sort of um, integrative musical style, maybe it's a certain melody, maybe it's a theme with, with which these things are written, uh, but just the same, I ended up spending some time with these three psalms, and so I wanted to do a short series with you where we're going to spend this week and the next two weeks reflecting on each of these psalms uh, individually. Uh, today I'm going to be in Psalm 39. If you've got a Bible with you or have a Bible app on your uh, smart device, I'd be happy to have you turn there. We're going to be uh, looking at all of that psalm over the course of, of this morning. It was interesting to me, and you can, you can observe for yourself as we go the next couple of weeks, there do seem to be some common themes that emerged from these psalms, and I felt that these psalms all spoke well to the current situation we've been living in. 
Psalm 39 deals especially with what I would call a sort of quiet suffering. Now, it'll become clear as we read through that as David is reflecting on his own situation, Psalm 39 is written partially from a sense of guilt. David is writing from a place where he feels he is being chastised by God. He feels he's being held accountable for something. And he's embarrassed and he's frustrated. But I think some of his thoughts are useful not just for someone with a guilty conscience, but I believe it's been the case for many of us over the last year where when you have something that feels frustrating, you know, the, the limitations of quarantine, all the time we've had to spend in isolation, uh, just getting stir-crazy around the house, there's some level of silent suffering that we've all been dealing with where I've got really no choice to go anywhere else but to sit here and still be frustrated, to wish I were in some other circumstance, some other situation. One of the challenges of being frustrated, especially frustrated in isolation, is trying to figure out what to say or what not to say. Because on the one hand, it's pretty easy when you're in a bad mood to just start blasting negative thoughts or to open your mouth and either kind of make a fool of yourself or embarrass yourself or offend someone for, for your harshness. So you don't want to just you know, start saying whatever comes in your head and create more trouble for yourself. But then there's also a way in which you don't want to miss an opportunity to say something when instead you chose to say nothing. As other people are going through the same experiences, it's useful to try and offer some sort of word of encouragement. But again, we're, we're teetering between those two things where I don't want to, because I know I'm in a negative place, I don't want to end up sticking my foot in my mouth, but I also don't want to be just absent and silent and have everyone wonder what's really going on in my head or in my heart. So, uh, Psalm 39, I want to begin with the first verse. He says, I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord my life's end, and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. So I was still reasonably young when social media became a thing. Like I can remember the days of MySpace when that was something that everyone did. But I really don't envy our young people today in that it's so easy to post something on social media only to be haunted, sometimes years later, by stuff that you said a long time ago. Uh, how many times have we seen that happen in the last four or five years where something someone tweeted, you know, what they would have called an innocent tweet or a simple joke that hasn't aged well, all of a sudden someone's gone on a deep dive into social media and they pull up the most unsavory possible things that you've ever said or done and you find yourself canceled. That would be the term, right? Uh, people make some really unfortunate choices in what they post. And one thing I think I've noticed that I would say is a difference between this younger generation versus the time when I was growing up. Um, when I was growing up, social media wasn't even a thing. But I do think now it's important that parents talk to their children about social media, not only what they're going to use, but also 
you really have to think about the kinds of things that you're going to post and how these things are going to age and how these things are going to reflect on you in the future. But just the same, in this psalm, he's wrestling with, do I say something or do I not say something? And he says, I tried to say nothing, but it's like it just started kind of burning within me. I felt dissatisfied. He talks about those emotions and the heat rising where I can't just do nothing and I feel like I can't win whether I say something good or bad. What's interesting to me in this passage is that in a moment of these built-up frustrations, this built-up tension, his solution, at least as he practices it, is to encourage us to think about our life from beginning to end. So instead of being really caught up in this tiny negative moment, he says, take a few steps back, think about, think about where you came from, think about ultimately where you're going, put this tiny situation in the context of everything else that you've been given, all the other opportunities that you have, all the other challenges you've been able to overcome. He says, Lord, when he finally opens his mouth, it's a prayer, and he says, Lord, help me to remember the number of my days. Help me to know that this isn't going to last forever. Something like we see in Psalm 90, where we're taught that we gain a heart of wisdom by learning to number our days. But as he describes life, here he uses a word that could be translated like vapor or mist or breath, and he's echoing what Job uses to talk about his own life. When Job goes through everything and everything falls apart and Job uses that same word and says, my life is a vapor. My life is like a mist. So something I'm wondering about, I would imagine some of you have an opinion on this. Why is it that life seems to go by faster as you get older. Do you think that's true? My grandmother's been telling me that since I was very young. And she continues to say the older she gets, the faster it seems to go. So my, my theory on this is that when you're a four-year-old and you think about a year of your life, you're talking about a quarter of your total lived experience. That feels like a lot. You know, maybe it's just kind of this subjective thing, a perspective thing where now I've seen so many years go by, they just don't seem to take as long. Maybe we just get busier. I'm sure you have opinions too. I don't know exactly what the reason is. But one thing I have learned, and I think I may have shared this with you before, but something that's very interesting to me is, based on the values of our culture, where everything is youth worship, everyone's trying to look younger, and they're trying to always make 50 the new 30, and everyone's trying to resist getting older, some of the things you would assume about this world are, are that as you get older, especially when your health isn't what it used to be, and you can't run as fast, you can't stay up and have as much energy, some of the things that we would think make us happy as you get older, those things demonstrably start diminishing. Yet the statistics are, as people get older, this is not true of all people, but most people seem to get happier as they get older. And what they, what they learned as they studied this and they started talking to people who got older, the deal is older people have started putting into practice what David is talking about in this psalm where they've started numbering their days and realize I'm not going to be here forever. And at some point, you flip a switch and you make this decision that, you know, I'm just not going to waste so much time on stuff that isn't bringing me joy. 
I'm just not going to waste so much time on that. And a lot of older people, that is part of the wisdom of getting older. They've, they've gotten to wear the things they would wear themselves out on in their 20s and 30s. You know, now it just didn't matter. And I'm not going to treat it like it matters. But the things I do enjoy, grabbing coffee with my friends or playing dominoes or spending time with my grandkids, being silly, like whatever that is, if that brings me joy, I'm going to do a bunch more of that thing. I don't care what anybody thinks about it. There's some wisdom. There's some wisdom to that. So he invites us to think in perspective about our problems. And I, would, I think when you look at this passage as he's talking about the suffering, sometimes it's just a matter of like this pandemic we're going through. If we can hold on just a little bit longer, this thing is going to pass. We're making steady progress. It is going to be a little chunk of our lives, but it's not going to define all of our lives. But then there are other circumstances where maybe it was a terrible decision you made and you do have some consequences that unfortunately are going to stay with you for most of your life, sometimes all of your life. I mean, you get out of the heat of the moment, things can get better. But I think he would remind us that even in those circumstances, either this situation will pass or if this situation is now part of your life, eventually you'll pass. Eventually, God is going to take you home, and you'll be freed from this thing you're dealing with. He continues in verse 6. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth, without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done it. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. One of the hardest parts of being humbled by God, I don't think for many of us it's the realization that perhaps I've been wrong. We all know inside we've made mistakes. I think the harder part is when I have to accept that other people are going to know that I'm not as perfect as I might want people to think I am. It's when I've been chastised and caught and maybe I've even done something really wrong and I'm going to have to repent over. It's really hard to know that other people may see you differently. That's definitely a tension you see in this psalm as David is sorting through things. You can kind of pick that up in his comments. That it's hard letting the world know that I really don't have it all together. And as a human being, trying to be authentic and growing is you have to have that exterior layer that we put on. You have to have that peeled away. That is an unpleasant process. David just says, I don't want to be the scorn of fools. I don't want to have even the ignorant people looking at me and laughing at me. But the benefit of those learning experiences is that we do start to put all things in better perspective. So now he's at a point where he's apparently lost some of his fortunes and so he's looking at the people around him who are mocking him, who are all chasing after possessions and he says they're just wasting their time because if God decides to go after them, if God decides to hold them accountable, God can make your possessions disappear like a moth. He says things can just start vanishing. He asks the question, why worry so much about heaping up wealth and possessions when you have no idea who's going to get it after you're gone? It might go to your descendants. It might just as easily tear your descendants apart as they fight over it. What's the real benefit 
to just trying to accumulate material things. If all that you spend your energy and your efforts and your talents on are things that, you know, a little salt water and salty air or, or just some rust or moths or any of these things would start to erode or decay or rust, he says, what's the benefit of that? What do I look for, he asks. Where do I place my hope? I think all this leads to a very important question. When you reflect on the end of your life, and your life will have one, when you get to the end of your life and all the pieces go back into the box and dust returns to dust and the soul returns to God who created it, what remains then? That's the question. What will still endure after all this other stuff disappears? And it comes down to just you and God, does it not? And the truth is, it's always been that way, except we may live our lives too distracted to see that truth. It's always been the case that most of this stuff, nearly all of this stuff, is going to pass away, but God will still be there waiting to greet us as we meet him face to face. He's already given us so much. You know, even this morning, at what point in the night did you wake up and decide you were going to be healthy enough to get here today? When was that up to you? When did you decide to be born in whatever country you were or to be brought into these circumstances of the United States where we have so many opportunities? All those doors of opportunity that you've had in your life, did you create those yourself? Did you not have people who took you by the hand and helped you along that surely God must have put there in your life? I think the Christian worldview would demand that we say there's really no such thing as a self-made person. There are people who've taken great advantage and made the most of the opportunities they've been given, but the most successful person you've ever met by worldly standards still had so much that was just given to them through their circumstances or the people they needed or the opportunities that helped them. We've all been given so much. So David would remind us that God is our origin. God is our life even now. God is also our destination. So again, the question is, in God's presence, what remains? What will endure? He continues and says in verse 12, Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. He echoes something in these verses that he's already mentioned several times in this psalm. Back in verse 5, he says, everyone is really just a vapor or a mist. And again, in verse 11, he says the same thing. Everyone is just but a vapor. But here in these verses, he points the camera around the other direction and says, that's also true of me. Everyone's a vapor, including me. My life is here today and gone tomorrow. He says it's important that we realize that in this world, we are temporary residents, we are foreigners, we are aliens, we are passing through to something that's different. I wonder if you've ever gone through an experience in your life where you suddenly realized that you were the foreigner or the outsider or the exile. 
The first time I ever felt that sensation was on my first mission trip. In 1999, I was graduating from high school and I went on my first trip to Honduras. And I was excited about it, we prayed about it, we made all our big plans. And I remember when we landed in the airport, I started getting this sensation as I was walking onto the ground that this is the first time in my life I've been standing on land that wasn't the United States and I'm, I'm not a citizen here. That feeling was intensified as I started looking around. Something different about the way our nation does things is that you kind of have military and then you have police. In many nations, the military are the police. And so stationed and standing all around the airport, not, not, in, a hostile, not in a hostile way, but you've got all these guards standing around with machine guns. First time I'd ever seen one of those. And it wasn't you know, one of my guys holding it. Then, a few minutes later, there were a couple of guys with our group, and despite the fact that everyone makes the rules, you stick together, nobody leaves till we all leave, we wait until our bus is ready, don't break the rules, stay with the group. Two guys saw a little like convenience store across the street, and they're like, ah, they're not going to know, we're going to go get a couple snacks and come back. So, they left the airport, went across the street, managed to get the snacks they wanted, they came back to the airport and were about to walk into the door, and two guards stepped over with their machine guns and said, didn't speak English either. Now, eventually they figured out that for 20 bucks, the guards would let them back in. But again, that, that was a weird sensation for me. Oh, this is, this is a place where I am, but this really isn't the place that I belong. I'm here for a purpose while I'm here, but this isn't really my home. This isn't my country or my land. It may be a good place, but it's not my permanent place. I think perhaps it's true that the closer you are to God, the stranger you may seem everywhere else. The more you're trying to live a life that is focused on God and what God wants from you in your life, you're going to start being noticeably different than the people around you. And you may have more of those sensations that, hmm, I really think my citizenship is in a different place. With so much being temporary, I like what Peter says in his letter about the permanence of walking with God. Carrie uh, read this for us uh, wonderfully earlier. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, on the one hand, when we go through difficulty in life, I can have an easier time accepting well, you know, this is God's timing for my life, that maybe this is the time God needed to challenge me and I needed to make some changes, and maybe it feels a little like being chastised or whatever it is, but when I'm thinking about my own life, I can accept that a little bit. But what's hard is realizing that there's a lot of other people in this world, and God's timing for my life might be completely different for their life. So while I feel like, ugh, maybe I'm having to, to be accountable to God, it looks like all those people are getting away with it. That's the perspective that David seems to have here. It's hard to accept that God deals with us all on different time frames. He works with us all individually. So Peter encourages us to keep seeking after the things that are unseen because these are the things, he says, 
Despite the fact that gold is refined by fire, gold will pass away, but your soul, the things that you've done, the connection that you have with God, these are the things that go with you all the way to the end. You know, there's a, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called uh, The Great Divorce, and he's writing this book as his way of trying to imagine what it's like to die and to go into the new land. And he does some stuff that's pretty creative with how this works, but he describes the process of dying as he's imagining it, and he says it's like there's this big train and all the people passing into the next life get on this train, but at the place where they get off, it's beautiful, it's lush and green, but the problem is everything that you try to touch is so much more solid and so much heavier than you've ever seen it before. He says, you'd see beautiful flowers, but if you tried to pick one, you couldn't, you couldn't break it off. And the thing that really stuck with me since I read this book a long time ago was that when the person started trying to step on the grass, it was like stepping on knives. The grass was so hard, they couldn't hardly stand to put their foot on it. And in contrast to this, he says, all the people getting off the trains looked like ghosts and vapors. And his point in illustrating it like this is that we, we live under this, this false assumption that the world we're in is the real world. When you talk about spiritual things, it's the spiritual things that you would try to talk about like they're mists or vapors or phantoms, all the words we were seeing used in the Psalms. But the reality is, this is the world that is passing away like a mist or a vapor. You've never been in the real world before the one that will outlast all of these things, the, the world where you can live in the presence of God and not just be consumed by his glory and his power. He says, when we die for the first time, we enter the real world. We encounter the full truth face to face. What will remain in that destination? At the end of life, what will still be left of me? What will still be left of you? I think the answer to that story, if nothing else, has to be the thing that's left will be your story as God remembers it. It's a book of life, isn't it? It's a record of our actions, our deeds, the kindnesses that we chose to show, the times we chose to refrain from doing what we could, all of these things that God remembers. And so it becomes imperative for us always to be seeking God to know God. The goal is that when you stand before God, the person that you're finally seeing face to face is not a stranger, not just a mystery, but instead it's the person you've been longing to get to your whole life, the person you've been walking with all along the way. It's finally feeling like you're at the place you truly belong because you've already been living like a citizen of that place. I know all of us have been going through a difficult season and maybe in your life right now, there are some things that we could be praying with you or for you about. Uh, we always carve out a little time in our worship service where if you wanted to share something with the whole church and seek prayers of the church, if you wanted to make a commitment to Christ and baptism, if, if there's anything you'd like to share publicly today, uh, we have an opportunity for you to do that. It's always the case just as much, though, if you just want to give us a phone call and drop by the office or pull one of the elders aside after worship, some things you'd rather handle privately we just want you to know that we are here for you, however we could help. This is an opportunity where you can respond if you'd like to, while together we stand and sing.